I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. It's an annual summer event, as much a part of our American culture as a 4th of July barbecue, and often with its own set of fireworks. Another Supreme Court term ended. It's time to make sense of the policies and the politics. Important and intriguing decisions and alliances again this year. Birth control and Obamacare. Privacy, police searches, and cell phones abortion protests, campaign finance regulations, and more, we also may have seen a changing court, with some two-thirds of all decisions coming by unanimous decision. How should we think about that compromise? Does the Supreme Court provide the so-called bipartisanship that our other branches brutally lack? How should we think about the policies? What's the real impact of these decisions on our daily lives? And what about the politics? Many decisions went directly against President Obama's priorities. What effect could there be on midterm voting? Willie Jay has served as an assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General, clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia, and special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's argued 11 cases before the Supreme Court and briefed hundreds more. He's now a partner in the Goodwin-Proctor Litigation Department and a co-chair of its appellate litigation practice. Willie, thanks for joining me. For a Supreme Court watcher, how exciting is this time of year? Uh, It's always very exciting, uh, especially for the people who aren't able to be in the courtroom during the hand-downs, watching online as decisions come out drip by drip, uh, waiting for uh, not just the results, of each case, but to see who wrote the opinions and what the reasoning is. You, you really look at all aspects of it, don't you? It's not just what the result is. It's who said what, who is part of the majority, if they, you know, which part of the majority were they, if they dissented, what was their, t- I mean, you, you really pick apart every element of it, don't you? You certainly do. And there, there are people who turn right to the dissent to see what the fault lines between the dissent and the majority was in the case. Uh, now, this term, uh, as you mentioned, there were more unanimous decisions, and so sometimes you couldn't turn right to the dissent. But in a lot of those cases, the unanimity on the result papers over some serious disagreements about the reasoning. So if you read the separate opinions in those cases, uh, you find just as much disagreement as you might find in a case with a stinging dissent. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that. Just quickly, though, just picking up on one thing that you said, and, and you talked about, you know, for those who have not been in the court or weren't in the court when a decision was handed down, were you ever in the court when that occurred or that wasn't uh, uh, part of what fell under your jurisdiction? No, I've done that uh, many times, uh, including uh, occasionally on the last day of the term, uh, which uh, which can be very exciting, including, uh, for example, the term that the court had first heard argument in Citizens United, a case in which I had worked on the government's brief. The uh, last day of the term came, and they handed down a number of other opinions, and we waited for Citizens United to come down. At last, we figured the Chief Justice must have it because he always goes last. And then they handed everything else down, and he said, we've ordered re-argument in Citizens United. See you back here in the fall. So sometimes uh, even the last day of the term turns out not to be the last day for an opinion that you're waiting for. And what is that like? Are you sitting there? I mean, I've never, obviously, I've never done it. Are you sitting there with other attorneys, I mean, obviously, at that point, you were with the Solicitor General's office, but are you sitting with other attorneys on other cases, and you're all kind of waiting and, and hanging out for the decision? Or or is it just a select group who's there waiting? What, what's that vibe like? 
So on the last day of the term, there are no uh, oral arguments. Uh, so it, everyone who's there knows that it's just a decision day. And there are members of the public in the public section, people who have stood in line uh, you know, waited, uh, waited patiently for a chance to hear the court hand down opinions. There's also a section reserved for members of the Supreme Court bar, and you'll often see people there uh, you know, who are veteran Supreme Court advocates, often people who have a case that's been pending for a long time, people uh, uh, who have uh, taken time out of their schedule because they figure this is the day that their case will be handed down. And then, of course, there are lawyers for the government. And so when I was uh, in the Solicitor General's office, uh, we would be there with the Solicitor General and some of his deputies. And uh, one of the great privileges of working in that office is that on that day when there are no arguments, the government lawyers are allowed to sit at the very front at the council table, you know, just really just a few feet from the justices as they hand down their opinions. Wow. Yeah, that uh, that must be a, a remarkable time. And you really you, you must really feel like you're sitting there. I mean, history is about to be made. And, uh, you know, you're, you're right there. You're right there. And uh, the health care case is one example of uh, uh, how being in the courtroom can actually heighten the suspense because you are subject to the whims of the justice re- reading the decision or handing down the decision, because they may not tell you until the very end who wins and who loses. Uh, whereas if you are outside looking at a paper copy, you literally can flip to the end and see whether the court is going to affirm or reverse, you know, which, which side is going to win. But if you're in the courtroom, uh, sometimes the court will go for several minutes telling you uh, about the case and about the reasoning and then say, but we need not decide that question definitively today because we're going to decide this case on narrower grounds. Right. You're like, come on, you know, Mr. Justice, Madam Justice, you know, can, can you just get to the get to the punchline? Did I win or lose? I mean, the, the chief justice's uh, bench statement handing down the decision in the case called Northwest Austin a number of years ago, I think 2009, which was the first of several challenges to sections four and five of the Voting Rights Act. It's a good example. You know, we, he was many minutes into the summary, and we all in the courtroom thought that they were going to strike down the Voting Rights Act. And then they said, no, then the chief justice said, but you know, we have a narrower way out in this case. And so we, we almost unanimously adopted Wow. Yeah. And uh, uh, obviously, sections four and five really coming under a lot of uh, scrutiny uh, lately. And, uh, you know, a lot in terms of uh, voting rights and access to, to voting, really important issues there. So let's talk about this term um, that, that, you know, that's been completed. How, how would you characterize it? Is there a theme or a trend that you saw? What's your take on the term overall? There is a lot of emphasis in the uh the press and the Supreme Court bar this week about the surprising degree of agreement among the uh, among the court. Uh, I I dissent from that a little bit. I think that while there are some cases that were uh, unanimous and perhaps surprisingly so, I, the cell phone search case I think is you know the best example of that. Uh, a case where the government's position that it can search the entirety of a cell phone uh, that's found on the person of someone who's being arrested for literally any charge subject to arrest. Uh, That was rejected unanimously, uh, just as the government's position 
uh, that it could attach a GPS tracker to a person's car and follow, uh, use it to track that person's movements over a period of weeks. That was unanimously rejected uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, those were closely fought arguments. I don't think anyone who walked out of the oral argument thought, wow, the government is going to lose that one nine zero. So it was something of a surprise uh, to see the unanimous result. But there, are, there were other cases this term uh, that uh, while unanimous as to the result, uh, revealed significant differences among the justices. And I think that the decision about recess appointments is a very good example of that. Everyone agreed, everyone on the court agreed that the president's recess appointment of several members of the National Labor Relations Board was unconstitutional. But the reasoning of the decision uh five justices joined Justice Breyer's opinion, which basically uh, is a huge win for executive power and for this administration and for future presidents, uh, and four justices joined Justice Scalia's separate concurrence, which would have been a much narrower view of the recess appointment power. Uh, and those those separate positions are not just different in terms of their outcome, they're very different as to their reasoning. Do you think about that at all in terms of what we see going on in the legislative branch and, and I guess to, in some extent to the exec, in the executive branch as well? I mean, thinking about Congress, you have such polarization and, and many people think as a result of that polarization, to exaggerate the point, nothing can get done. We can't come to some type of agreement, even on the basic elements of, let's call it, you know, where, where, where do you want to start? Immigration reform, uh, you know, education, gun control. I mean, you know, pick, pick your topic. And and so nothing, you know, quote, nothing can get done. And now you've got the Supreme Court where, as you point out, really real differences, you know, even in, in, in these decisions, real differences within the the majority. Yet Roberts, it, to some extent, was able to navigate a decision, a unanimous decision. So despite big differences, yes, coming to same, some result, whereas in Congress, you know, big differences and we can't come to some result. Am I oversimplifying? Is there is there a leadership opportunity? for the court in that? And, and how do you, do you think about any of that at all? Uh, the, the way I think about polarization at the Supreme Court is kind of like this. It's a small group. There are only nine of them. They know that they're going to be together for a very long time. Uh, and they also know that there will be different fault lines in different cases. So the justice who is dissenting from your opinion today maybe your closest ally, or maybe even the swing vote tomorrow. Uh, it just isn't the case that the same justice is always the swing vote. There are certain issues and even um, just certain peculiar cases uh, that different justices approach differently. And it's not uh, along the usual five to four ideological split that you read so much about. And so the court uh, has institutional reasons to be collegial and to um, stick to their principles, but to not do so in a per, um, personal or offensive way because uh, they're not polarized to the same poles all the time. Uh, they uh, they have different uh, issues that split them differently. Uh, and uh, so a Supreme Court advocate uh, trying to win a case, uh, I think would be, uh, would be well served to think about how you can appeal to each member of the court, because you might put together a different five justice majority in one case than another. So no 
real opportunity for for an example for you know whether that's for Congress or or even the the American public on ways to come together you know create you know some type of bond around a decision because yeah you might need that justice on the next one or you might need that senator even on on the next one um, and and that while we still have you know while there are still massive differences massive levels of polarization um, you know you can still come together and, and find common ground on on certain decisions. It, it's certainly true in the legislature too that you know not every deci- not every issue is a partisan issue and your allies today might be your adversary tomorrow and vice versa. Uh, you know, which is I think a useful lesson in every deliberative group. You know whether it's the Senate or the court. Uh, but it's just a fact of modern politics that more issues before the Congress are partisan yeah. today and, and, than come before the courts. Yes, yeah, certainly. And, and to your point, in, in terms of the court, there was a um, uh, the the uh, the justice that they used to work for uh, Scalia. Um, wrote uh, in one of his uh, concurrences, um, I prefer not to take part in the assembling of an apparent but spacious uni- uh, unanimity. I mean, he's he's basically calling out, look, I, I know that we're unanimous in this decision, and I forget exactly which case this was for, but, you know, let's not fool ourselves. There's, there's not a whole lot of kumbaya going on. Right, because uh, the court's job in individual cases is to say who wins. Uh, but in the course of doing that, they set out reasoning that will guide the lower courts and, you know, in some ways, the whole country. And uh, while the court may be unanimous about who wins this particular case, the reasoning can, uh, can be far more significant than you know, whether one particular criminal defendant walks free, for example. Willie, I want to talk to you about some of the specific cases. You mentioned, of course, the cell phone case, Riley v. California. I want to uh, ask you as well a little bit about the politics and and how you might see um, midterms 2014 uh, playing out as a result of some of these decisions. Some of these really went against uh, Obama, um, the uh, National uh, Labor Relations Board decision you you mentioned, but there was also maybe some strengthening of the executive branch you see in that. But, uh, you know, some of the specific cases, some of the politics, want to ask you about that. But first, I have a special request for our Political Wire listeners. Will you help Political Wire stay free to download by completing a short, anonymous survey? It'll take no more than five minutes, and your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered in an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. That's in addition, of course, to the thanks from Tegan and myself. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com wire. That's www.podsurvey.com podsurvey.com slash wire to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We really thank you for the help. Willie, in your view, what was the biggest case, either in terms of the cultural impact it'll create or the political impact, or just in terms of plain surprise, which case will stand out in years to come? Which case will stand out in years to come? Uh, you know, I think that the uh, recess appointments case uh, is a tremendously significant case in terms of uh, what law professors look at. Uh, but I really think that the uh, the cell phone case uh, is the case that will have the most 
uh, practical impact on Americans. Uh, just you think about how many people are arrested every day and how many adults in this country carry a cell phone today. I mean, it, this marks a real change in police practice and a real change in how the court thinks about privacy. Does the court react at all to the sense of privacy and the change? I mean, there's obviously because of the NSA, you know, because of Snowden, because of everything that's occurred, the discussions around because of Google, because of, you know, anti-privacy. I mean, the talk of privacy and thinking about privacy has changed and is changing um, in our country, particularly, you know, to some extent, I guess, the further we get from uh, 9-11. Is the court sensitive to the changing culture? Does the court more affect the culture? Can the, the Riley decision be played into an overall evolution of the discussion of privacy in our country? Do you, do you, is there any linkage there or no? This is just a case about policing and about, you know, right to privacy when, when you're arrested. Well, it is a case about the, uh, the degree to which you lose your privacy rights when you're arrested. But the way the court approached it and the significance that the court gave to cell phones as opposed to, for example, wallets or pocketbooks or other things that we carry, uh, very much is sensitive to what society is like today and how people live their lives today. Uh, the court uh, wrote, you know, quite lyrically about how uh, cell phones are used, what they're capable of, and how many people regard them as almost an extension of themselves. Uh, I think it was noted somewhere in one of the opinions that uh, uh, a significant number of Americans responded to a survey saying that they uh, uh, use their cell phones in the shower. Uh, or at least have them nearby when yeah. they're in the shower. Uh, so that's uh, that definitely is a way in which the court is sensitive to the, you know, the realities of how its decisions uh, affect daily life in America. And I think it, it definitely it consciously announced a different rule for cell phones than for pieces of paper tucked into your wallet. And that's significant. The the consciousness of, you know, the realities of daily life in America. I mean, you've you've had, um, you know, an incredible set of opportunities and perspectives. I mean, having clerked inside the Supreme Court, having worked inside the Solicitor General's office, having served, you know, uh, as a special counsel in the Senate on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, I mean, you've really gotten to see how... Um, you know, justice is is created and delivered in our country from, you know, I, I guess all three branches, now that I'm really thinking about it, which is a fantastic opportunity. That, that sense of the reality of American life and daily life, how, how much does that play into the consciousness of the court and of the justices? I mean, are they, are they worried about, worried might be the too strong of a word, are they kind of conscious and, and thinking about being current and, and aware of, of, of those trends, or, or are they more thinking about, no, you know, we're, we're interpreting law and interpreting cases and interpreting the Constitution, and that's driving the culture of our country? And, and maybe you can't, uh, you know, stereotype for all nine justices, but just, just in general overall in the court. I do think that it's hard to generalize in all cases, you know, uh, but I do think that it, 
you can identify certain areas, especially areas having to do with technology. Now, those aren't all constitutional cases, and most of the court's docket does not involve constitutional cases. Uh, journalists like to talk about the business docket, but that's, that's pretty varied, too. Uh, but here in the cell phone case or in one of the major patent cases that the court decided this term, which was about software patents, uh, you see the court uh, really having to at least understand some fairly cutting-edge technological issues. What can a smartphone do? How can you disable the remote wiping feature on a smartphone? What does a software patent um, allow the inventor to do and nobody else to do? Um, and you definitely see the court, which doesn't deal with high technology, especially every day in the way that um, that many other Americans do as a part of you know life and business. Um, you see the court sometimes wanting to make extra sure that it understands the technology and the legal issues that come out of the technology so that it can reach a decision that, you know, to be blunt, isn't technologically illiterate. I want to ask you as well because you, you again have a unique perspective, having been a, a you know a bit as you stated earlier, you know playing a role in the uh, Citizens United um, case and and uh, you know some of the decisions and some of the writings there, and and part of that case, of course, had to do with the. Um, you correct me if I kind of have the specifics of this wrong, but I believe you know the the freedom of speech for corporations is isn't that right? That was kind of you know in attributing you know more of the rights that many of us might you know think of for individuals and applying those a little bit more towards corporations. Um, we saw that perhaps as well in Hobby Lobby. Um, and I know that that was not a First Amendment case, but you know, is there a is there a growing sense of applying um, rights and, and and in terms of the Hobby Lobby case and applying rights that one historically might have thought of as individual rights or personal rights and applying those to corporations? Is there a trend? And and if so, what, what do you think about it? If there is, Justice Alito, I think responded in the Hobby Lobby opinion to the. You know, what you might call the fermenting debate about uh, rights being asserted by corporations. And he has this passage in there that you can tell is directly responsive to that, uh, in which he says, uh, we are upholding the uh, religious freedom claim asserted by Hobby Lobby and Conestoga Wood Specialties, two, you know, two companies in this case, not because corporations go to church and exercise religion, but because corporations are made up of people, right? You know, uh, that this is a way of protecting individuals' rights. Uh, and I think the majority in Citizens United would say the same thing, that the corporations uh, who are freed by that decision to spend on politics are just individuals with opinions, with First Amendment rights, banding together and you know, calling the you know the entity that they use to um, pull their resources a corporation. But they, what, the way the court's majority in both Hobby Lobby and Citizens United approaches the question, they say individuals have these rights. Do they lose them when they band together in the form of a business entity, call it a corporation, call it a partnership, call it anything else? No, they do not. And what about the politics? Um, you know, it's hard, especially in a midterm election year, to separate the policy from the politics. 
Um, starting with the president, I mean, he got knocked on some issues uh, around campaign finance. Um, you know, you mentioned the National uh, Labor Relations Board decision, although, you know, you also pointed out um, some of the ways in which it may have strengthened. While on first glance, it, it kind of was a knock on him. Uh, it also may have strengthened some uh, aspects of the executive branch. Um, you know, obviously, Hobby Lobby and, and you know, it was seen as a bit of a knock on uh, the Affordable Care Act, you know, just two years after the, the court really, you know, obviously clearly upheld the, uh, the, the ACA. Um, you know, a bad year for the president. Uh, I saw a couple of headlines. One, SCOTUS's shellacking of Obama uh, from the Hill. Another one, you know, Obama's disappointing year at the Supreme Court. Um, that came from reason. Is that is that fair? Is that accurate on the on the politics of this? I don't think this was a particularly bad year for the president at the Supreme Court. Uh, I think that, uh, in particular, uh, on the recess appointments case, you have to look beyond the bottom line. Uh, that these these appointments were struck down. You now have a majority of the Supreme Court saying that the president can make recess appointments during pretty much any congressional recess that's uh, that's more than ten uh, more than ten days long, the uh, uh, which the court had never said before. Uh, the, the administration certainly did lose the Hobby Lobby case, and they also had intervened in the abortion clinic buffer zones case as a friend of the court trying to get Massachusetts's statute upheld, uh, and they were unsuccessful in uh, in both of those. Uh, but Neither of them was the kind of broad sweeping defeat uh, that I think would would really leave the administration with a uh, major uh, egg on their face. Uh, some you win, some you lose. Uh, you know, the, the greenhouse gas case was probably the uh, most significant uh, kind of non-constitutional case that the government lost at the Supreme Court this year. But it's important to remember that, as Justice Scalia said uh, in announcing that decision, that even in that loss, the EPA was getting something like 83% of what it wanted. What about in terms of midterms? Um, you know, is, there, is this a, a term that the Republicans can run on and feel good about? Um, is it something that Democrats can run on and, see, and say, see, you know, danger ahead? Um, what about the midterms? I do think that uh, this continues the trend of uh, reminding Republican voters that you can't expect the Supreme Court to uh, reverse everything that the current administration is doing, uh, that if you want certain changes brought about, you will need to control Congress. And really, uh, eventually the presidency. But uh, appointments are one example. You know, the president has a pretty, uh, pretty robust power. Uh, and is, as long as the Senate is going to take recesses, the president will be able to make recess appointments. Uh, you saw this year the Senate change its rules on, uh, sorry, uh, this, during this Congress, the Senate change its rules on presidential nominations. Uh, the courts are not going to, you know, bail the Republicans out on that. And, find that rules change unconstitutional. If they want to stop the president from appointing judges or sub-cabinet officers who they don't like, they're going to need to control the Senate. Willie J., former assistant to the U.S. Solicitor General, former clerk to Justice Scalia and uh, special counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee, now uh, partner at Goodwin Proctor Litigation Department, also co-chair of its appellate litigation practice. Willie, thank you so much for your time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.